I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. For official purposes, everyone has a number. Yours is number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Six of one, half a dozen of another. Glenn. Chris. The cost of this podcast is 24 work units. There you go. See, right there. Right there. Right in, uh, hot at the top. Hot at the top, as we say in the business. Although, the amount of time I had to put in editing our previous episode, I, I'm thinking about hiking it to like maybe 40 work units. But <laughs> it, it definitely felt like more than 24 work units that I, I logged. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that whiskey costs more than vodka in the village, even if it's not alcoholic. You know, Chris, I was listening back to our previous episodes uh, as well, and one thing that struck me is how kind of uh, uptight and buttoned up I particular sound. You sound great, but I, I sound like the grade grubber I used to be. I, I have all this homework, and I want to fit it in, uh, and I just keep going back to it and back to it. I just like not letting not letting myself be loose, not letting myself be cash. Much more uh, arrival number six. And what I'm going to tell you today is I am aiming to be more uh, Chimes of Big Ben oh, number no. six. More relaxed, more more chill with the village, which is one of the things that makes it such an unusual episode because it was filmed about the same time as all the others were in the first four, but and it was originally intended to be slotted later, but they took one look, as we talked about last week, they took a one look at Dance of the Dead, which was originally scheduled to be number two, and they said, this is too weird, we need something a little bit more grounded and real, so they slotted this one in. So yes, that's what I'm saying. I, I poured myself a, a bourbon. Excellent. I'm going to get loose. We're going to have more fun talking about this very odd but uh, kind of um, quintessential. All right, so we episode. should we should expect a little little class clown Glenn, little little petulant Glenn in this one because that that is how I would describe number six for for much of this episode is petulant. Welcome to the podcast where we take the prisoner, this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series, and we push it like salt and pepper. We file it like deadline copy. We stamp it like, this. like Terrence. We index it like Michael C. Hall's ulcer. Okay. I'm going give to you, give you a second on that one. I, 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 okay, got it. Got it. Excellent. I'm uh, with you. We're going to brief it like an airport pelican. Sure. We're going to debrief it like we're going commando. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. We're going to talk McGoohans. We're going to talk MacGuffins. Our inquiry into this still perplexing document is not of a degree imperfect. It is not of a degree fragmentary. It is not of a degree oh, no. hither, nor of a degree thither. It is of a degree, uh-huh. Glenn, Glenn. It's a, it, uh, a degree absolute. You've got it again. Uh-huh. Two for two, two consecutive episodes. You you have uh, correctly identified the, the title of our it's, show. Uh, it's not a degree Tito's. It's not a degree Kettle One. It's a degree absolute. You know, I've been thinking since our last episode, you, you spoke of the star and creative force behind this, this series. You spoke of an unsettling, intense man who early in his life considered the priesthood as a career, who remained throughout deeply devoted to his religion, indifferent, if not hostile to women, who asserted total control over his story about an aging spy slash ex-spy to the point that whomever is credited at any point as producer, screenwriter, director, he has arguably done all of these jobs at various stages of the enterprise, has certainly hired and fired people for each of those jobs, absolutely retained veto power over even the most minute aspect of the production. And I thought you never really liked Tom Cruise, so I'm uh, <laughs> a little baffled to find you so so invested in this. I can't picture number six jumping on a couch. That just doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> seem like a jumping on a couch kind of guy. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, it's, uh, he, he is a singular person, and, and he created a very singular show. But if you were in England in 1967 and in the States in 1968, and you saw these first two episodes, you'd think, this could be more John Drake. This could be more Secret Dead. Yeah, there's some weirdness. Yeah, the ball. Yeah, the white smothering ball of death. But um, y- there is nothing in here yet to tip you off how around the bend this show will eventually go uh, and devolve into uh, really some real abstractions toward the end. I have read the suggestion that it almost doesn't matter what order in which you view these episodes as long as you watch Arrival first and then watch uh, Once Upon a Time and Fallout last. I really don't agree with that because we have we are told in this episode that he's been gone for months. Um, and in other episodes, it just seems like he's le- he's still learning things about the village. In Free For All, he's still learning very basic things about the village. In uh, Dance of the Dead, he sees that um, they, they faked his death. Uh, that all seems like something that should have happened <laughs> yeah. in the first few weeks of being at the village, but it matters. It's, it's notable in this one that the the, the character who who says uh, you're you're returning to us after after months is perhaps not to be trusted. He could be lying true but the prisoner knows how long he's been gone right he knows i don't know if he does um mm. he certainly you know at the the top of this episode and I, I do sort of like the the kind of and media res this one feel that this has just by virtue of being you know filmed fourth or whatever it was and, and shown second he already seems to have at least superficially adopted the the rituals of the village, you know, cheerfully greeting people as they, they go by. And we see this when he meets the main driver of the plot in this episode, a new arrival to the village named Nadia. And she's asking him, where am I? What 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 is this place? How do I get to the Green Dome? And, and he is not really breaking his back to help her out. He, he seems very suspicious. He seems very suspicious. And he... He's kind of a dick. I mean, he's kind of a dick to every woman he meets, and they, uh, they in turn betray him. Who are these people? Why are they here? Why are you? This episode was written by Vincent Tilsley, who, who talks about how George Markstein came to his house and described the premise of the series and commissioned the, the teleplay from him. This one keeps the, the Markstein feel in that it's, it's largely an, an escape plot. And not until the very end do we get the the, the twist that you know, marks the more surreal sense that, that I think people associate with this show. Mm-hmm. I agree. We should start, though, with right at the top, um, with the first Q&A uh, uh, that will become emblematic of this show. Uh, where am I in the village? Who are you? The new, like, all of that. This first time it's done, though, it's done with the uh, number two of this episode, Liam McKern. And the thing that strikes you, once you have heard pretty much every other number two doing this thing, running through this little, this little paces here, uh, is how much McKern vacillates between just tossing away a line, like throwing it out there, just toss it out there, and full-on mustache twirling. Like, uh, where, where am I? In the village. Just let's throwing it out there, just tossing it off. And then uh, there's a whole thing about how he will come to me whimpering, which is not, <laughs> it's, it's not, that is not a line that he tosses away. That is a line I, he chews on. I love that. In a really fun way. Like he can, he can pivot. He can hairpin turn in a single line of dialogue. I, I love him. I absolutely see why they, they brought him back to be the, mm-hmm. the number two in the concluding two episodes. <laughs> you really are the limit, number six. The other thing about Liam McKern is 
he is really the only number two in that opening Q&A who makes the fact that you repeat the, the word information three times uh, make any sense. What do you want? Information. 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 You won't get it by hook or by crook. We will. Most number twos just go information, information, information. And he goes, information, information, information. Like he, he yeah. puts a different spin on every iteration of it as if he's thinking about right. it, as if it's coming to him. Yeah. Certainly a different spin from the way Beyonce puts on it when she <laughs> says she wants you to, to get information. Get information, exactly. I know the episode opens with what we hear the, the audio of the, the dialogue. What do, where am I in the village? What do you want to admit? Do we actually see that scene happen in this episode? Because I have, I have watched this. I, I watched it like one and a half times before recording this. I have seen this one many times in the past. I don't remember if we actually see that play out after hearing that dialogue at the very beginning. No, it um, it doesn't. It's it's in the intro. This is the first the first time we see that introduction with the number two. It's also we get the insert shot of the current number two sitting in the chair, uh, and that's that's important because there are certain times when we're going to get a fake out of who number two is, and in those instances, that same dialogue happens with a kind of a, a creepy villain, and we never see the cutaway shot of number two sitting in the chair. If I can misquote uh, David Foster Wallace, this is uh, what I will, will categorize as a totally irrelevant thing that I will never not be completely obsessed with. Gotcha. Uh, I, I had to look up his age when he shot this episode. A um, couple years older than I am, but uh, just, just a few. <laughs> um, definitely has better hip mobility than I do. The way he sits in his uh, control chair, mm -hmm. cross-legged with, uh, like he's in, almost in a yoga pose. Yeah, that's true. I didn't notice that. You wouldn't look at him and think this is an athletic man, but uh, really impressive flexibility, Glenn. That's good to know. That's good to know. I mean, you know, he would take that flexibility to Rumpole of the Bailey and other places, <laughs> where, who was uh, famously... I mean, uh, I think uh, famously... hip flexion was a prerequisite to play Rumpole of the Bailey. Absolutely. He had hips like Gumbry. <laughs> In the brief exchange he has where he invites number six to come watch Nadia wake up, uh, he, there's a there's a, a moment where he regards the butler with, I wouldn't say contempt, but um, suspicion. Uh, there is something very interesting in how, and this will come again. This is this is another thing we'll see. This is another thing cluing us in that he is not necessarily fully on board with everything that's going on in the village. There is a feeling of. Um, Fear, perhaps, or or just a, a worry. He he regards the butler as emblematic of the village and the people who are running the village, which is why one reason why when this show was first aired, a lot of folks thought, oh yeah, the butler's number one. Butler's got to be number one. That's clear. <laughs> one thing that that does keep this show feeling very very surreal is the fact that all of all of the other villagers, there's no sense that they have any any inner life, right? They all seem to have been cast as uh, as set dressing yeah i mean like the other villagers we meet we meet the general again different general i believe uh from the first episode who was playing but plays sort of in, yes different character different different actor but clearly interchangeable with the the admiral absolutely and he has given up you're gonna be here for life my boy uh there's also number six that's my opinion yes. you're a fool number six that's also a, a, a sense that the prisoner is being told 
that if he cooperates, he can leave. We are made to see, just by Number Six's reaction, that no, he he, he understands that, that there's no leaving this village, and um, yeah, and they they have and, the same checkout policy as the Hotel California. As the Hotel California, there is something in that exchange with uh, Number Two, where he talks about Number Two talks about how both sides, and you have to remember this was right at the height of the Cold War, yeah. when there were two very clearly differentiated powers in the world, uh, the good side and the evil side, the West and the East. Um, at least that's how it was popularly portrayed. And number two introduces the then controversial, I would imagine, idea that both sides are becoming so much like each other that there will be an international community, a blueprint for world order, which is a term that only Bond villains use, really. <laughs> it's not really a term that yeah. other people, like nice people, toss around. No. But yeah, that's that's uh, that's an interesting thing because the first time you see this episode, you think, okay, I now know where the village is, right? And I also know which side runs the village. Both of those assumptions are questioned in subsequent episodes, so uh, they're undercut or they're contradicted flatly. But uh, again, if you saw this in 1967, you'd think two of the major mysteries of this show have just been solved uh, in the second episode. Yeah. And and that is not the case. Well, it's certainly the mystery of where the village is. I mean, they give us a, a very clear, unambiguous answer to that that I think turns out to be false. And we get a bit of a clue uh, as to why why did you resign is such a hot topic here. We are told once he answers that, he, everything will fall into place. He, we are told also that he doesn't bend, which means he's going to break. Um, this is also a very important point because we have to understand why they don't just kill him, why they don't just interrogate him, why they're pushing the foot around, why they're doing all this kind of dog and pony show around him, why, why aren't they taking more extreme measures? And it's Liam McKern here, and again, much later in the series, who will insist that, no, if, if you get him, he will be great. If you can turn him, uh, it, he is worth all this work. The scene you're describing where number two says, it doesn't matter who number one is, it doesn't matter who, who runs the village, you know, this is just the best template for civilization. There are some people who leave this place and some who do not leave. You are obviously staying. As he's saying this, Nadia, our newest arrival, is going for a swim that turns out to be her first escape attempt. Mm -hmm. This is where Tildesley says that George Markstein said, well, we're going to have this uh, robotic henchman rover and we want to demonstrate that rover is amphibious so you should put a put a scene in where, where rover foils and an escape by water so so tills league is like okay rover is some kind of robot that has a blue light that paralyzes you or hypnotizes you drags its victim inside of itself like the star destroyer sucking up that blockade runner at the beginning of star wars although uh markstein didn't describe it that way because he wasn't a prophet Right. Later on, when, when Tilsley saw what Rover ended up looking like and the fact that they had retained the scene solving the problem of how the weather balloon Rover was going to take Nadia back to shore by having it sprout, which you can't not see his testicles. No, it's, uh, I hear you. He just thought it looked ridiculous. He was, he was yeah. not pleased with that visualization. Also seems unnecessary, right? I mean, we've already seen McGowan's face uh, behind that Rover membrane. Like, why couldn't Rover just engulf Nadia like a bubble and just drag her back that way. Why'd Rover need need the nuts? Instead, you're right. We get this very long, relatively speaking. There's lots of this is a very quickly edited show, but we get a very long psychedelic sequence where the two 
uh, Roborettes get introduced. <laughs> and uh, it goes on for at least 30 seconds of screen time, which seems like a lot in this show. Yep. Um, and before that, uh, Liam McKern visits the control room. He talks to the supervisor. And he, again, no number two before or since will throw out the words orange alert the way he does. Oh, well, orange alert. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, oh, well, yeah. despite the dispatch, the white ball of smothering anguish. Yep. Uh, it, it's just so much fun. And then we cut to the hospital. And if you notice, this is the first time I noticed, I've seen the show a million times. Uh, the Castle Hospital has a couple TV antennas sticking out of it at the top, uh, which I would think everything would be closed, closed circuit in the village, but apparently mm. not. Or maybe they're yeah, like, boy. Know, I wondered that now. Do you, do, you, do you think uh, set dresser put those there, or was they they just there in Port Marion? Because uh, they were there on the on the yeah. building that they used on the set, and I don't think they could they couldn't CGI them out because it was 1967. Um, so after uh, reporting that a uh, number six is a sense of humor, which I think is open to debate, and, I must update your file. <laughs> and b a little later that he does have, as you say, egomania. Overweening sense of self-importance. While here, his egomania has, if anything, increased. Then he dispatches Nadia to his care by saying, she's all yours, which, again, gross. Uh, And then we get this deal that number six and number two have struck. I will participate in this silly uh, uh, arts and crafts. (laughs) Can you paint? Can you draw? Can you model Uh clay? And... um, Uh Sort of, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so he agrees to, to participate in the uh, abstract, or into the art exhibition with some abstract art, which he says is basically primitive. Abstract art, he says, <laughs> is basically primitive. And then he goes out and he fells stock footage of a tree. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And um, he is howlingly unconvincing as somebody who's just going along to get along. Um, yeah, he's got you know, the Mr. Rogers shoes, and he's got that windbreaker, that kind of blue windbreaker that must mm-hmm. be village issued. Um, and he's out there with Nadia pretending to, if not romance, then certainly companionship with Nadia. Well... In a way to try to convince the, the village that uh, there's there's something there. Right. Nadia, in whom he has taken an interest only after being persuaded by her apparent suicide attempt. After she is dragged back by Rover and the the Roverettes. Number six is, I guess, invited to join number two in the the observation room, watching her in this room where she's being interrogated and uh, sort of figuring out that there is an electrical current in the floor where she can, if she times her dash correctly, she can avoid electrocution. Exactly. And there's this big buildup that we we think she's preparing for her escape. And then it turns out she's actually trying to electrocute herself. And uh, this is, is what finally seems to make number six sympathetic towards her up till that point i think he's just viewing her as a as a plan uh, also she's got uh hair that looks like a hat because there's a lot of aquanet involved in that she's yeah sort of some serious stiff uh uh marlo thomas and that girl hair she has taken a chunk of the ozone layer with her uh, <laughs> let's just say the the actress name is nadia gray nadia gray nadia yes. gray and she's good because she has to be this, um, she has to vacillate between being somebody we can kind of see as a competent spy, also somebody who is uh, falling for number six. And then finally at the end, all she does is give him a look from atop the stairs. And it is a much more knowing uh, and, and faintly uh, contemptuous look 
uh, that is so different from any expression she's adopted over the course of the entire episode. Uh, in that moment, she won me over. In that moment, she won me over in a big way. Yeah, I, I, I think she is just as unconvincing at, at playing uh, a damsel in distress who needs number six to take care of her as number six is at playing, uh, you know, a happy-go-lucky citizen who's who's perfectly content to follow the rules. Nadi Gray was a shocking 43 years old when she played this role. Uh, Not shocking. M- M- McGowan's... <laughs> Okay, but she is McGowan's senior by a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably just sexism that this was one of her last roles, even though she lived until 1994. She previously appeared in Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita as oh. Nadia. And okay. uh, in the film, here. The Oldest Profession in the role of Nadia. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. But uh, whether it's, it's McGowan or someone else who deserves credit for this, let's recognize that they did it cast a woman of appropriate age and appropriate presence that it seems plausible that she could have had a whole career in the intelligence service of one country or another and uh, retired at a, a pretty high rank this is not what's her face in uh, the world is not enough denise richards and, and sure. she's a uh, head of the, the russian christmas? nuclear physics Pro- christmas jones yes yes christmas yes jones, yeah. right but I think that lends her some credibility, right? Because she wakes Absolutely. up in that this kind Absolutely, this is what of, I'm saying. Yeah. That kind of Eastern European bed and breakfast. Um, it's, <laughs> it's very clear that she is from the other side of the curtain. And they watch her, you know, get up and look out her window. And Leo just loves that. Like, it, it seems like, you know, last episode we've talked about, oh, this must be to cushion the blow. Or it just, it's how number two gets his kicks. Uh, it's clearly how number two gets his kicks. And this number two, when um, b- before uh, they're they're off to go uh, to the woods, uh, where number six will start carving his abstract sculpture that turns out to be a, a boat, which looks like a boat, <laughs> which looks so much like a boat that the idea that it's yeah. an abstract art piece is like yeah. so it's is an abstract art piece of a boat because that's what it looks like anyway. Yeah, yeah. I like the way that that uh, when number six tells number two that he and Nadi are off to the woods. Number naughty. two says naughty, naughty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was another big problem that uh, the writer Vincent Tilsley had with this episode. He, although he had been told about Rover, he had not been told that McGowan was not willing to kiss any of his co-stars or even present mm-hmm. the the suggestion of romance. So he thought the way that this scene get, gets played, where they need to get close and, and canoodle so she can whisper to number six where the village actually is and, mm-hmm. and they can conspire, it just looks super, super weird. Uh, Tilsley was like, as a secret agent or just as a you know moderately emotionally intelligent human being, in this situation, you would probably kiss the other person you know try to present to your surveillors the the illusion of sexual attraction and McGowan does this real weird kind of hair stroking oh uh, my god yeah kind of, yeah it is so so <laughs> awkward not, yeah. Yeah. it's like gross yeah. and also <laughs> he manages to stroke her hair and not get his hand stuck so that is that is spycraft that is advanced spycraft because he tradecraft, is obviously so tradecraft <laughs> Tradecraft, sorry, yeah. tradecraft, yes. Uh, he is obviously somebody who has had some experience, uh, not necessarily with women, but with, <laughs> with pretending to be interested in women. Will I be safe? I can't answer for the British authorities, for either of us. Can you answer for you? I give you my personal guarantee for whatever that's worth. This is how he finds out. The village is in Lithuania on the Baltic, about 30 miles from the Polish border. Um, and let's take a step back here, Chris. Before we get to that, we have to go to the art exhibition where number six is the only one to participate in the art exhibition who has not made art 
of or about number two. Uh, he has created something purely abstract. It just looks like you a deconstructed boat is all it looks like. It just looks like a deconstructed boat. <laughs> but everyone seems to agree that it looks like a church door. A church uh, door, <laughs> and the mainmast is the pinnacle of human achievement. And uh, why the cross piece? And I, would, I thought, being such a devout Catholic, he would throw in something there. He was like, why not? <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Why the cross piece? Why not? I think I see what he's getting at. Yes, but this other piece here of the same... General line, somewhat more abstract, as you'll notice, representing freedom or a barrier, depending how you look at it. The barrier's down, the door is open, you're free. Free to go, free to escape, to escape to this, the symbol to human aspirations, knowledge, freedom, escape. There is something in his description of the work which struck me as very okay boomer kind of contempt for the language of criticism and the language of academia and describing abstract art it's like some this is a parody of the art world of the time by a guy who probably has a turner on his wall or you know or some kind of a seascape he's not an abstract art guy which is odd because this is a very abstract series but the language he uses there is classic I'm making fun of the kind of people who would talk about art in this way. And then talk about his show in this, this way for decades thereafter. Yep. He has everything he needs for his boat except what? Except the sail, which uh, he uh, acquires right, uh, from number 38, who has made a giant tapestry of number two. And he wins the uh, uh, art competition, uh, mostly because number two is putting his thumb on the scale, uh, and he's really talking up number two to the uh, arts judges. Uh, and he wins wins 200 work credits or whatever work units, um, and he wishes to buy number 38's work to hang in my own home. Agreed. Hitting the last word uh, in every phrase with that punch that that mcguin that patrick punch that is so weird such a weirdo uh but it makes the series so watchable because when it busts out it busts out when he is um trying to be a little larger than life yeah do you, do you think he was just rolling the dice that that someone someone's graven image of number two would be a tapestry like if it had all just been you know chess pieces <laughs> or uh, modeled in clay, he really I, would have been out of luck trying to to power. I his, hate his boat. the term plot hole, Chris. But like if somebody hadn't come up, <laughs> I mean he would probably use a bedsheet, right? He probably would have used a bedsheet. He yeah, could have done yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But there's a, there's a nice little uh, uh, shiv to number two's side by using a uh, sail with his likeness upon it. I suppose I think uh, that was a nice little right. bit of poetic justice. Yes. Okay. So they they sail away. They meet some contact of Nadia's in the what the Lithuanian resistance or, yep. or something, um, who helps pack them into a shipping crate. Before that, uh, the Lithuanian dude gives him his watch, oh, which important. is the yeah. thing that will be the key to unlocking this episode. It'll be the key to him solving the puzzle of this episode. Yes. And then they get packed into packing crates. And yeah. then Chris, the show does a very dirty deal with the audience. Uh, it does not play fair. It shows us exterior shots of a ship going from Gdansk to Danzig. Yeah. Shows us a plane going from Copenhagen right. to London. 
we get a shot of um, Fotheringay, which if you had to come up with a quintessentially British name, you couldn't come up with one more. Uh, Colonel J would uh, would win the British off against Fotheringay, if, if only on the strength of the way he says, oh, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nyet, I say. No, no, Nyet, I say. Nyet. Um, Fotheringay is brought in to kind of be there in the office and then leave. Like, that's it. That's all Fotheringay is there to do. Uh, because I guess if it was just the colonel, he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't buy it. Yeah, but like he's supposed to know Fotheringay from his old life, right? It's sure. the same function that Cobb provided in, in Arrival. Exactly. And we get a shot of Fotheringay answering the phone and being told, yes, I can't wait to see him. Which, again, not fair. Yeah. Not fair. Like, if yeah. this if this show, if this episode had played fair uh, and given us a chance to guess what was going on, um, or to, to keep us in number six's head, yeah, we might have figured it out. But it also wouldn't yeah. be like a rug pulling out of uh, under right. us. You know, it, it would it would be... It would it, it would just make more sense. This is far less damning an error than that, but I just want to want to point out Vincent Tilsley wanted to make clear that in his teleplay, Nadia and Number Six shared a single queen size or king size shipping crate, not the two uh-huh. twin bed size shipping <laughs> crates with a little partition between them, as it is shown in the episode. And she's uh, it's made very clear in that that transit journey that she is warm for his form she keeps asking him questions and he <laughs> are you engaged to someone is that the right word big ben yeah have you got a wife in England? no he keeps shutting her down in this very tetchy way this very <laughs> quiet you uh yeah. it's just <laughs> yes, it's yes if he's engaged and he says go to sleep <laughs> yes right uh so yes then they get unpacked in um, the colonel's office, he's offered a whiskey. The fact that they take this shipping crate and wheel it right into the office of this high-ranking guy so they can pop it open in front of him. I mean, even though this whole thing is going to be revealed as a psyops thing mm-hmm. against number six, going by the the, the sort of external uh, veracities that you've already mentioned, the exterior shots of the ship at sea, of the, the cargo plane in flight, wouldn't we want to see this crate being... Sniffed by a bomb dog or something <laughs> before they, <laughs> like, wheel it into the colonel's So outfit. after they're in the crate, we're expected to believe they just got they just mm-hmm. got taken back to the village. Or maybe the village has unlimited mm-hmm. funds and it did actually put them into a plane. And it did actually put them onto a, a ship and then just take them back at some point uh, when they were asleep or something. I don't exactly know. <laughs> we're not supposed to be able to follow this, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's... Um, it, it's 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 the reason I think I know where the village is, right? It's the reason I think I know. Of course, this is... This is uh, this is Lithuania on the Baltic, 30 miles from the Polish border. I, I, I have yet to be unconvinced right. of that. Um, the reason we know the village has unlimited funds is that they could hire Cockney actors to pretend to be, Oh, this one's heavy. Oi. Yeah. Be careful. <laughs> it says fragile. And I don't know. By, by 1966, their day was uh, waning, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> they were in, in great demand in the 50s. But that's what the entire journey should have been, right? I mean, I guess they could. They wouldn't have made, well, I think it would have made pretty good television just to see them kind of jostled around <laughs> uh, as, you know, we, this must be Copenhagen, this must be Gdansk, yeah. this must be whatever. I'm relying on my memory of, of having seen it only once, but I did finally watch last year the, the Ipcris file, which I, I mentioned uh-huh. because uh, Guy Dolman, who plays number two in the prior episode, is is in that movie. Um, and it's also, you know, a, a concurrent spy thing with this. But the whole 
kind of centerpiece of that is them taking Harry Palmer, as played by Michael Caine, and trying to brainwash him by by convincing him that he is all these other places when he's really just a, just in a room in this this one place to mm-hmm. the point where they're you know they're playing sound effects and m- many of the same techniques that we see employed against Number Six in this episode are done to Harry Palmer in that film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so um, he gets to talk to the Colonel one on one. And the colonel just wins the British off. I'm here to ask the questions. Number two, <laughs> the way he gets his mouth and that mustache that we have to talk about the yeah. mustache uh, around the words. Number two, the village. It's just, it, I haven't seen the teleplay, but I know it's like Colonel J, parentheses, incredulously, the village. Uh, it's yeah. just so chewy. It's, it's, um, he is, he's, he's having at it. He is, he's making a meal out of. <laughs> No, no, he says no. Yet, yet, I say it's just yeah. It's so fun. That part could have been could have been a lot longer. Yeah, <laughs> the village, the village. I, I think it must be during the Seaborn segment, and I, and I didn't clock it, even though I was looking out for it. But where we see the night sky shot that librarian Tony Sloman insists was pilfered from the library that Stanley Kubrick had put together for the concurrently in production. 2001 a space Odyssey. Oh. he says that uh, douglas trumbull who worked on 2001 and you know would later go on to do close encounters and blade runner movies that still look amazing all these decades later sure smuggled a shot to his requirements out from under mr kubrick's nose there you go and that he never would have said that anywhere while while kubrick was still alive good tradecraft tradecraft it's yes. all tradecraft uh, um so the colonel questions him uh and we see a remarkably not contrite but a remarkably like he's about to give it all up it is very clear he's about to give it all up um we learn that his resignation was a matter of conscious conscience um by the way like the fact that the colonel is also interested primarily in why he resigned which again seems seems to me such an abstract question to hang an entire series on uh that should have been a tip-off um but he says it's a matter of conscience and he starts by saying, uh, for a very long time. And then he hears the chimes of Big Ben. We should have mentioned that's why this episode is called The Chimes of Big Ben, because uh, Nadia keeps calling him Big Bill slash Big Ben. So Big Ben's a deal, a big deal. And of course, um, these offices we are meant to think are in or very near um, the, the, the yeah. wind, like Parliament. Um, so uh, it yep, makes yep. sense Westminster. that yep. we would hear the chimes of Big Ben out the window. And then he makes a choice, as soon as he suspects that he's being duped, he makes a choice to start unplugging things in the office. I don't know if that I would, would that would be my go-to. Uh, I, I might look out the window that's right there, for example. Yeah, but, yeah. But uh, that's what he does. If I were setting up the, the phony set intended to make him believe he's he's in London, I, I probably would have concealed my, my reel-to-reel tape recorder a little little better than having it be the... The first cabinet that's like arm level, like you don't even really have to bend over to, to open yep. the cabinet and find yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. And the reason he figures it out is because uh, his watch uh, reads the same time as it did in the village, which it shouldn't because there's one hour's difference, uh, which, of course, is, yeah. again, his... Which I, I see, this is the kind of thing that I usually mm-hmm. love in screenwriting, that it's such a small thing, but in so many pivot points in real life hang on, on something that mm-hmm. small. 
in this instance, I just don't believe that the the master architects of this vast psychological matrix would forget that London and, and Lithuania are in different time zones. Well, give it up to the actor Kevin Stoney, who plays Colonel J, because as soon as number six clocks it, <laughs> clocks it, he looks worried. He looks like he 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 wants to say something, but he can't say it because all they can say is the village. Uh, so yeah, it's I, I I yeah no no Colonel Colonel J has no improv. No, game. that's true. He he really he he can't cannot he yes cannot end. yes end. He can only yet he can only yet <laughs> <laughs> no. Anyway, so he walks out of the office in disgust in his little windbreaker, uh, walks down a long hallway, which could be the village, could be this weird British office, and then he opens the door, and of course it's right there on the on, in, in the middle of the village with all the people walking around with their umbrellas yeah, and their yeah. capes and their hats. And number two and Nadia, and I think it's Father and Gay perhaps, um, are on the steps looking down at him. He walks past them. He uh, gives them the salute, and uh, he walks on. Then we cut to a very odd coda, which he, he goes into his... Uh, he snaps his fingers yep. to make the door open, trying to regain some control. It's, it's, a, it's actually a really nice uh, psychological point where he just needs to yeah. show these people that he's still in some kind of control. Then we cut to uh, the control room where Nadia is leaving. She is wearing a mink coat to remind us that she's evil. She t- says to... Number two, it was a good idea. It was worth trying. I'll mention it in my report. And then we get wham face slam, slam shot. That's yeah. the ending. That does not seem to me, Chris, like a closing line. I'll mention it in my report. Slam. There, there must have been something that they cut out. Right. There must have been yeah. something else. Coda, uh, uh, watching her walk away into the distance or something with number six. That is not an ending. I completely agree. And yet... Vincent Tilsley, who we've established, was not at all shy at airing his dissatisfaction with uh, the elements of, of this episode that he thought were dumb, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't have anything to say about the very abrupt and sort of weak uh, epitaph. Yeah, epitaph. It, <laughs> it is ended the moment she stops speaking, which is just not how you do it. Even in a show that is as edited as briskly as this one, that just struck me as they were trying to, they were trying to catch... Like a few seconds. Like they just needed, they, they were coming in over and they just needed to cut off something at the very, very end. That episode should end not with Nadia, but with number two. We should get like a reaction shot of Leo McKern, but we don't. Yeah. I, I feel like there's, there's more of a rapport between McGowan and McKern. Mm-hmm. Certainly than the, the prior two number twos who we saw in the one previous episode, mm-hmm. um, which again would just, seem to explain why they brought McGurn back for the, the big finale. Of all the number twos we've seen, and I think of all the number twos we will see, there is a real admiration slash affection for number six that comes through in Leo McCurn's performance, which is unusual to see. There's respect in a lot yeah. of the other number twos, but there's real um, there's real affection going on between these two men. You know, something we, we, we didn't point out when we were discussing the very provocative discussion wherein number two says, you know, it doesn't matter who runs the village, both sides are, are becoming the same. Number six says, you know, I don't suppose it's occurred to you that you're as much a prisoner as I am. And it's like, oh, my old boy, of course, of course it has, of course it has. He kind of rolls his eyes and he's he's going to carry out his, his mission, of, but not, not with any seeming relish. 
right, most of the time, which which does kind of contrast with whimpering. Yes, yes absolutely. He also says we're both lifers, and uh, the thing is, number twos aren't. Number twos come and go. Number twos leave. Uh, or yeah. they get sunk into the kind of weird sub-basement of the village, which we get glimpses of here and there. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe there is just they're just not uh, front yeah. of the house, as we say. <laughs> Maybe they are. Oh, okay, so how long has number six been a resident of the village when the chimes of the big band opens? Uh, months. Because I'm going to take I'm going to take Colonel the Colonel at his word, and I I would imagine okay. if. Um, if the colonel said that and the prisoner and number six knew, he would say, no, it's been mere weeks. But no, it's been months. Okay. Because it, it, it certainly seems in the, the way that the villagers revere number two, which again could all be fakey fake for number six's benefit. But the way that they're all creating likenesses of him for the art show seems to suggest a, a long campaign of... Uh, uh, I don't know, velvet gloved totalitarian rule by <laughs> by this particular McKern model. Well, that's two. if you are reading it the way I prefer to read this series, really on a, on a realist level. But if you're lo- reading it allegorically, of course, then the art community is kowtowing to its corporate masters, its uh, its patrons. Uh, it is a it is yeah. an indictment of the art world, um, and you know, not a. Not a light-fisted one, <laughs> but yeah. uh, that's, 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 I think, what's going on there. I guess it, it is important for we, the audience, to recognize that all of the likenesses are of, of number two, which is why the villagers have been given a, a certain degree of artistic right. skill. Um, we, we can't have, you know, some kids, uh, like kindergarten crayon drawing, like, oh, it's, it's Leo McCurry. And, and if it's like, oh, true, yes, this it is. is a good it, point, Chris. If, if it's true that he's been away for months... Six weeks of those months were under, at least uh, six weeks, were under number two's, this number two stewardship, Leo McKern's stewardship, because we know that the, the time between the announcement of the arts community, the arts competition, yeah, and the, the right. community itself is six weeks. So that's a long tenure. It seems to me an unusually long tenure for a number two. See, I think that this is maybe another reason why, why Christopher Nolan is a fascinated by this series because the elapsed time in each episode is like what the yeah yeah yep. <laughs> i mean yeah it's all all over yep. the map and again that's if you were trying to read the series realistically which we will come to learn is a fool's game <laughs> because that's not what it's about <laughs> that's why we're that's why we're that's playing why it. we're playing this game all right so next up again these first two episodes belong to the uh, what McGuinn considered the core seven. The next one we're going to be talking about, A, B, and C, uh, does not. It is. It's. It. It makes no sense to me to call ten episodes out of a seventeen-episode series the filler episodes, but um, man, some of them really feel like they are inessential. And it's been a long time since I saw A, B, and C, so I'm, I'm curious how where it'll fall on that scale. But it is not one that tells you, does not give you a, a core understanding of the village it is playing in this the village's universe if that makes sense yeah this is this is going to be uh less familiar ground for me for right me right i think they use some techniques on number two that they said they wouldn't use until later um so yeah it'll be trying to puzzle out the uh, a chronology of these episodes that makes any damn sense is again fool's game but we're playing it patrick McGowan has a a weird ability to open his eyes to different degrees. This is not the same thing as winking, where one guy eye is closed and one eye is open. He can have one eye fully open and one eye like half open. Okay. And it makes him look 
injured sometimes <laughs> or, or the sheer rage he's he's containing is partially paralyzing his his face i don't know it's why when when uh, although he is he is a handsome man when you said on a prior episode that he is symmetrical i was like is he because i always thought he kind of looked like Clayface. Mm-hmm. like i think some of that is just that this thing he does with his eyes where he lets one eyelid well come that's down. it i mean that's, that's different than closing the eye i mean like he he has very expressive flesh-colored eyebrows but they are the only thing on that face that moves he is a very still actor which is what you want when you spend as much of time as this guy does in close-ups. Like, you want uh, to yeah. emote. This is Michael Caine on acting. This is on mo- acting for movies. This is, you want to remain as still as possible. Otherwise, you're going to seem like Gumby. You're going to be uh, like rubber face. You're going to be Jim Carrey, even when you're not. And it's also part of the character, right? There is a contained rage in this character that is very important yeah. to who he is. It comes out at the ends of sentences, and it also comes out in those eyebrows. <laughs> He keep control of his emotions for, for most of a sentence. Uh-huh. But the closer we get to punctuation, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> the more dangerous <laughs> it becomes. Absolutely. A Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klimek. You can email the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at gmail.com. You can tweet us at not a number pod as ever glenn and i would like to thank our families without whose unfailing support this project could never have come to fruition that's another mistake they made get out